Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Matthew P. Hitt, Assistant Professor of Political Science at Colorado State University. We will discuss his book, Inconsistency and Indecision in the United States Supreme Court, which is published by the University of Michigan Press. So welcome to the show, Matt. Yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, no, it's it's really my pleasure. I'm so glad you got in touch and sent me a copy of your book, which I found really interesting and sort of a, somewhat like some of the findings were kind of interestingly counterintuitive and maybe kind of counter the narrative that we often hear about the Supreme Court sometimes. So I'm really interested in in digging in to, to your research um, and your findings, but I thought we could start maybe by sort of helping listeners understand some of the terminology that you're using, because I think that'll help them understand the conclusions that that you come to. So among other things in the book, you talk about trade-offs between decisiveness and consistency in judicial decision-making. What do you mean by those two terms? Right, right. So to think about uh, sort of the broader enterprise, uh, a meta-motivating question is, is the Supreme Court operating the way the framers who wanted an independent Supreme Court wanted it to, right? So you can go back to Hamilton, for example, in Federalist Number 78. And he's talking about why you would want a court of last resort in our Federalist system of powers that has judges with you know lifetime independence, uh, lifetime tenure, all these sorts of things. And why do you want that? Well, you want that because at times Congress may pass statutes that come into conflict with each other. At times... Other courts may issue conflicting decisions. And Hamilton and many, many others since then have argued, well, what we need is a body that can just simply say, what is the law, right, uh, on a national scale? Brandeis also says this in uh, some of his writings. So that's decisiveness, right? As legal conflicts and ambiguities arise either from conflicting statutes, uh, from conflicts between other courts, it is the Supreme Court's obligation, some would argue, to as best they can decisively resolve conflicts in law and society and sort of give that clarity so uh, the, the elected branches, ordinary citizens, businesses can move forward knowing what the law is. Now, consistency is sort of a second piece of this thing you might want from a court of last resort, right? So as uh, your listeners uh, will well know, the Supreme Court, uh, in addition to resolving conflicts, of course, is promulgating important doctrine. And the doctrine, as everybody listening knows, I'm sure, the doctrine is really the thing that we care about, you know, 99 times out of 100. Now, at times, of course, the court announces a judgment, you know, resolves some conflict and actually doesn't provide clearer uh you know, comprehensible doctrine at all. At times, of course, the court will do things per curiam. Uh, so there is no doctrine, essentially, that's uh, all that meaningful that comes out of that. But the other piece of consistency that I spend a lot of time on in the book is this idea that a logically consistent judgment from the Supreme Court should be a judgment where the ruling, the holding, is supported by reasoning that a majority of the justices have endorsed or supported. Right. So you can think of examples of plurality dis decisions, for example, where you might have uh, four justices who support incorporating the Second Amendment based on a substantive due process rationale from the 14th Amendment. 
And then you might have Clarence Thomas who says, okay, yes, the Second Amendment certainly ought to be incorporated. I, I stand with that judgment, but I categorically reject this rationale. And instead, I offer a rationale based on the privileges or immunities clause of the 14th Amendment, right? And then the rest of the, the rest of the plurality opinion says, no, 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 we, that, that's simply not something we can uh, endorse. So you have a minority of the court wants to incorporate based on due process. A minority of the court wants to incorporate based on privileges or immunities, yet a majority wants the same outcome. So here the court as a body, as sort of a unit, has said, here is the outcome. But we can't tell you why, because a majority of us have actually rejected all the reasons we've considered. And that sort of is a baseline of logical inconsistency, right? And so ideally, you'd want a court that is both decisive, resolving these important conflicts in law and society, and consistent, promulgating clear and comprehensible doctrine for lower courts and other actors to follow. Okay, so if I understand correctly, then decisiveness manifests itself when the Supreme Court both hears and decides cases, and uh, and consistency manifests itself when the court decides cases with a rationale that is endorsed by a majority of the court. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay, C- can you have consistency without? decisiveness? Or how does this trade-off manifest itself? In other words, in practice, how do we see the sort of um, choice or kind of institutional decision between decisiveness and consistency happening? Right. So you can think about uh, these two sort of, on their face, each of them reasonable goals for a court of last resort. Decisiveness can manifest if you had a court, for example, um, if you think of the Supreme Court in the late 19th century, right, when you didn't have a cert process, the court was resolving uh, well over a thousand, sometimes 1,400, 1,500 cases a year, often with, you know, pretty short, um, pretty quick opinions, simply working through a great deal of judicial business, right? So this is a court that is prioritizing decisiveness and not spending a lot of time trying to promulgate really lengthy, well-reasoned, well-thought-out scholarly opinions. Now, on the other hand, as the court evolved over the 20th century, we saw that workload go way down, right? Starting really with the Judges' Bill in 1925 that introduced the cert process, and then continuing on the 1980s as the mandatory jurisdiction of the court was curtailed even further by congressional action. You have a court now that produces by and large, not completely, of course, but by and large, a lot of logically consistent judgments when they're making judgments at all. But as we know, the Supreme Court today is resolving you know, anywhere from 60 to 80 cases a year. So a fraction of the previous judicial business that they used to conduct. And so here you have a court now that seems to be prioritizing that consistency. So when they're able to come up with a majority of justices who can endorse the same doctrine, their batting average of producing consistent law, consistent doctrine is quite good, but they're simply producing a great deal less of it. And so that decisiveness function has sort of receded into the background. And I'm, I'm certainly not the only one to say this, right? Uh, you have folks like Arlen Specter, Ken Starr, who have written variously that the Supreme Court is abdicating a lot of its function for resolving circuit conflicts by having such a small workload these days. So do, do you think that change is primarily a function of the fact that 
Congress has given the Supreme Court more discretion over whether and when it hears cases relating to to particular issues, or maybe you could say is exercising less control over Supreme Court mandatory jurisdiction or a function of kind of internal institutional or historical sort of shifts in the kind of political role of the court as an institution, some combination of the two, or maybe I'm missing a factor that, you know, I should be thinking about. Any preliminary thoughts before we dig a little deeper into some of your specific findings? Right. So it's important that Congress is the one making these changes, right? So the justices want the court to change, but they can't change their jurisdiction on their own. What's interesting, if you dig into the history of both the Judges' Bill in 1925 and then the uh, Supreme Court Case Selections Act of 1988, so the two big jurisdiction changes in the 20th century, in both instances, you have justices who want this to happen. They're lobbying Congress for it. And you sort of see in the communication between the justices and Congress a certain take take our word for it, right? You can trust us. We're the justices. We run this court. We know how it best ought to operate. And especially after the judge's bill, there was this implicit promise uh, from Chief Chief Justice Taft and others that, look, we'll have a lower bar to hear a case, right? We'll institute the rule of four, essentially, that four votes will get a case heard as opposed to five. Uh, And that means it'll be easier to get in front of us. So this won't result in a decline of the decisiveness function. And then similarly, in 1988, you have the justices lobbying Congress saying, listen, some of these mandatory jurisdiction cases, they're complicated, they're difficult, but we really think they're not that important. And we'd rather spend our time on other stuff. So they're sort of providing this promise to Congress, we'll still do the decisiveness thing. Just give us control of our own institution right now. It's questionable if you look at the data, we can talk about this, whether that's actually happening. Right. Uh, there's, an, uh, there's a quote, and it may be apocryphal, so that's why it's not in the book, um, but that uh, the late Justice Scalia was once asked, do you think the Supreme Court's reduced workload is good for America? And, you know, the quip, which I hope I hope he actually said is, I don't know if it's good for America, but certainly is good for me. <laughs> oh gosh oh gosh well i want to i definitely want to return to to that dynamic but just really quickly before i forget about it you, you also talk about the difference between reasoned and unreasoned opinions and i wonder is that the same as consistent versus inconsistent or is there something different about the the reasoning issue Right. So I I use the terminology reasoned judgments and unreasoned judgments a lot in the book. And um, I've I've been working on this uh, for close to eight years now. And I continue to sort of, you know, as I worked on it, refine my thinking about how best to call this broader phenomenon that I'm talking about. And logical consistency is where this uh, thing started, right? This notion that you have justices coming out um, and you can read the opinion and say, yep, there is a clear rejection of the reasoning in one opinion and a clear rejection of the reasoning in a separate opinion. And there it is, right? Now, in that case, we have uh, a judgment clearly without a reason because all the reasons have been rejected by a majority of the justices. But this phenomenon that the Supreme Court would issue judgments without reasons goes further than uh, certain plurality opinions, right? In fact, uh, most opinions per curiam 
uh, at least in any case of uh, interest or importance, it's very clear that the ju- that a majority of the justices have agreed on an outcome, but disagreed on the rationale. And they've sort of hidden some of that disagreement uh, with what's typically a very, as your listeners will know, a very, very short, unsigned opinion for the court. Uh, Bush v. Gore, of course, is the famous example of this, right, where the actual judgment of the Supreme Court, you know, uh, resolving a dispute about a presidential election is incredibly short. And then you have voluminous uh, separate opinions uh, going back and forth about this. But there's obviously a burying of this dispute uh, with the procurium device. And so I use that terminology unreasoned versus reasoned judgment to get at the notion that you have a Supreme Court resolving a case, but not providing a reason that a majority of the justices can support, which happens in either the plurality case or the procurium case. Yeah. I mean, it almost seems like the Supreme Court is kind of exhibiting a sort of institutional embarrassment about inconsistency and unreasoned opinions and sort of using these different procedural mechanisms to avoid or hide that phenomenon. No, I think you're absolutely right. So in researching and building my argument for this book, I spent a decent amount of time in Washington uh, in the Library of Congress reading the justices' papers. And some of the justices have left us the records of the memos sent back and forth, uh, both as they deliberate over the cert process and deliberate over cases on the merits. And what you'll see expressed with some regularity, at least in the uh, files I was in, is this notion of, well, we want to have a court, capital C court, right? We want a majority opinion on this death penalty case. We want a court for this election law case, something like that. And the justices, at least for the period I was in the archives, so sort of the mid-late 20th century, uh, they're expressing this desire for, we want to produce consistent outcomes. We don't want these unreasoned judgments. And you can you know, go back and forth a little bit in terms of thinking about why the justices don't want that. I think at least part of the explanation uh, comes from the wonderful work of one of my graduate school mentors, uh, Lawrence Baum at Ohio State, who also has a new book with Neil Devins on this, talking about how the justices have a desire for the esteem and uh, reputation of their elite peers, which are law professors, elite attorneys, folks they interact with socially. And these unreasoned judgments tend to attract criticism, right? Bush v. Gore was fairly roundly criticized, for example, right? Um, And so there's this desire for the production of consistent law within the minds of the justices. I think there's at least a fair argument that that's part of the dynamic. And the price of being as consistent as possible is using that discretionary jurisdiction, that cert process to say, well, this issue is too complex. It's too muddy. I don't know if there's going to be a court uh, in favor of this outcome and this doctrine. So let's just, let's not bother. Let's punt. And then the polite term is let's let it percolate in the lower courts a bit more to hopefully refine the issues so that when it comes back in a few years, maybe we can find a court for a consistent outcome. Right. So, I mean, it, it, it seems to me that what you're saying or like the history that you're talking about reflects Congress wanting a decisive court and making jurisdictional changes over time based on representations from the court and people affiliated with the court that 
those changes would result in consistent or increased decisiveness. And that hasn't manifested itself. In fact, it seems like kind of the opposite. Why did why did the reasons that the court purported would uh, encourage decisiveness not play out the way that they were anticipated or with the way that they were promised? And how does the court in practice avoid decisiveness? Right. So, right. So I, I don't think I can speak with, uh, you know, any authoritativeness on whether, you know, Chief Justice Taft really did want to maintain decisiveness in the wake of the judge's bill, right? All we can look at is, well, what, what happened afterwards um, and sort of what the pattern of behavior we see in the justices is. And you can imagine the notion of decisiveness is not unattractive, right, to the justices, but there seems to be a prioritization of consistency instead. And when we talk about how the justices avoid being decisive, when cert's denied on a particular petition or another, it's that doesn't really break through, right? It's rare that that gets a ton of attention or criticism, right? Simply, um, you know, denying the cert petition, letting whatever was decided in the lower court stand and moving on. That's an easy way to, uh, to, you know, football season is almost upon us, right? So this is a convenient punt that the justices can always take, right? Um, Less uh, frequently seen, but another tool for this is the dig or um, a sort of a retrospective denial of cert that uh, for an improvidential grant, right? You can imagine if you get into the briefs and you realize this thing's a mess and there's not going to be a court for it, you can retroactively uh, deny the cert petition as well. So the, the court as an institution has tools that it can use to really keep a pretty firm control over the agenda before it, right? There are very few cases that arise these days under the court's remaining mandatory jurisdiction, which um, is a very, very small category of cases. So you were talking two or three a year. So virtually the entire business of the court is discretionary. Right, right. So so based on your research, when did you find that the court tends to be most decisive as opposed to least decisive? Right. So I, I begin the inquiry uh, in 1946, which at the time I started this was the earliest uh, moment in the court's history for which we had really good data at the case and justice level, uh, which comes from a project started by the late Professor Harold Spaeth at Michigan State University that's since been taken over by a wonderful team at Washington University in St. Louis. The Spaeth Supreme Court database, um, well, not perfect, uh, is really quite good and comprehensive for people in my field. So I start there. And what you see over the period of the study is the business of the court for most of this period is between deciding between 100 to 150, 160 cases a year. So that is the court at its most decisive in terms of just raw output. How much business are they doing on a term over term basis? Then the key moment at least uh, statistically looking at these numbers, the key moment comes in 1988 when Congress passes and uh, President Reagan signs the Supreme Court Case Selections Act. So this knocks out a huge uh, bunch of remaining categories of mandatory jurisdiction cases. And you see almost immediately following this in the terms from uh, 1989, 1990, on up to 2010, which is where I cut off the data for this study, which shows you how long I've been working on this. Um, 
you see, you see uh, a dramatic reduction in the number of cases uh, decided at the court. And it's important to note, this is in the face of at the exact same moment that the court's business plummets right to its current levels of, you know, resolving very few cases on a term by term basis. At this exact same moment in history, the number of cert petitions are going through the roof. The number of cases being resolved in the circuit courts of appeals is going way up. And it stands to reason, based on some writings uh, from other scholars, George and Guthrie, for example, the number of circuit conflicts, actual square conflicts between circuits, is certainly not gone down, and many would argue has gone up in the same exact moment in time when the court's business has gone down. Mm-hmm. So uh, one thing that struck me was that you know you 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 pointed to circuit or you looked at circuit splits as an example of when we might expect to see decisiveness and or consistency what kind of results did you find around those kind of bread and butter sort of decisions presented to the supreme court right right so what we find is that the supreme court tends to resolve circuit splits with reasoned judgments Right. Um, But because of that, that suggests to us then, okay, they're unlikely to try and resolve a circuit split unless they're confident that a reasoned judgment is going to emerge from this. Right. So the court's prioritization of consistency and reasoned judgments has the knock on effect of reducing the number of circuit conflicts that are likely to be heard at all. So it's not clear that that trade off is necessarily a good thing. Right. If you throw in with, uh, Justice Brandeis, that what's most important is that we know what the law is, resolving these circuit splits, even if the doctrine is muddy, confusing, arguably, at least knowing that we have, okay, well, this is the state of federal law for the entire country, as opposed to having different precedents in different parts of the country where litigants get different outcomes based on geography alone. That doesn't seem that desirable, necessarily. So it it seems your research reflects a sort of institutional decision on the part of the Supreme Court to prioritize to prioritize consistency and reason opinions over decisiveness. And yet the Supreme Court still does <laughs> occasionally produce uh in, inconsistent or unreasoned opinions when and why does that happen? I mean, are there kinds of cases that are most likely to generate those kinds of of inconsistent and unreasoned opinions? Yes, absolutely. That's the court does not bat a thousand, right? In terms of producing uh, consistent, well reasoned doctrine today, and in my work, what I show is that you tend to find these unreasoned, inconsistent sorts of outcomes in a couple kinds of cases. And the ones that I think are most interesting and most important to highlight. So number one, you see more inconsistency, unreasoned judgment when the Supreme Court is exercising judicial review. Uh, And I focus on judicial review over Congress because when we think about uh, the separation of power system, that is sort of the most fundamental, right? You have the elected legislature being overridden by the unelected court of last resort. That's a abrogation of the democratic process, some argue. And so if it's going to happen, some might claim, well, boy, you really better have a good reason for uh, overriding the will of an elected legislature as an unelected court. 
So you see unreasoned judgment more frequently in those instances where the court is exercising this, uh, perhaps its most fundamental and important power. You also tend to see unreasoned judgment in cases of heightened political and social salience. And salience uh, is a bit of a jargony word that uh, folks in my subfield have been trying to measure uh, for some time. One measure that I use that has some advantages to it is whether the case was discussed on the front page of the next day's New York Times. This is a nice measure because it's not contaminated by uh, any revisionist bias, right? If we look back 20 years on and say, well, that really was a pretty important case after all, right? So this is a measure of at the time the case was decided, was it of sufficient public attention to merit uh, front page on the national paper, paper of record? And we see in these cases as well, we see more unreasoned judgment. So what I argue in the book is you have a tension in the justices, right? There's this desire for consistency, which pushes through this general evolution uh, away from decisiveness. But in an individual case, there can absolutely be factors that push the justices to say, no, we really uh, ought to resolve it and we ought to resolve it in this way. And even if we can't get consistency in this particular instance, I'm fine with that. And in fact, in some cases, as I document in the book, you see instances where a justice could have had a consistent opinion and rejected it because they didn't want to allow uh, little, you can say, markers uh, of doctrine to be let into their opinion, right? There's a, a back and forth between Justices Blackman and Scalia where Justice Blackman won't accommodate Justice Scalia's desire to insert two sentences into his majority opinion. He loses the consistent opinion. And there's a private back and forth between Justice Blackman and one of his clerks where they say, look, if you let those two sentences in, this is going to come back and haunt you in the next abortion case, Planned Parenthood v. Casey. So there's this notion of, okay, yeah, this case is important. It has to be resolved. We feel strongly about it. But our preferences for the particular... Uh, strategic considerations of doctrine, et cetera, et cetera, are so strong in this individual case that these unreasoned judgments still slip through. And we still see them and we see them in cases, you know, I think I would argue of greater importance than your average Supreme Court decision. Yeah, it was really interesting because it struck me from the from your research and also from the fascinating examples that you gave in in each chapter, that there's a way in which the consistency seems to be a motivating factor, not only for the court institutionally, but for individual judges. Like as you suggest, it's like, it seems like they don't want to adopt inconsistent doctrine in one opinion for fear that they would then be precluded from defecting from that same doctrinal position in a totally different context. Do you think that that's a sort of new or kind of increasing factor driving sort of judicial decision-making at the Supreme Court level? That's a very good question. I don't know if I can answer that dispositively. I would say I do think you have a world today where the justices are embedded in sort of these competing legal social networks, right? More conservative justices tend to uh, socialize with folks from the Federalist Society um, and then uh, more liberal justices associate in different networks. 
And I think there is a sensitivity to criticism from elites and peers within those respective networks, right? Now, one of the things that I think is really interesting about this that honestly, I would love to continue exploring in future work is the extent to which the justices themselves and both within their own private writings and then in communication to other audiences, are the justices able to successfully distinguish themselves, right? So had Justice Blackman accepted Scalia's uh, marker of his couple little sentences, he said, okay, that's fine. We'll have a consistent opinion here. And then turned right back around in Planned Parenthood v. Casey and said, actually reject that line of reasoning completely. And as any good first or second year law student knows, you can at least try, you can give it the old law school effort to distinguish case one from case two, right? And say, well, there's got to be a distinguishing factor here. And how compelling that distinguishment is and how well readily it's accepted by other legal elites, I think, is sort of the line on which you'd say, okay, yes, uh, justice wants to seem internally consistent from one case to the other, at least within their own philosophy that they're laying down in case over case. Uh, I don't have good data exploring to what extent that actually happens on an individual within justice level. And I would love to do that at some point. So to the extent that Congress has noticed this pivot by the Supreme Court from decisiveness to consistency, is is that something this, that Congress cares about, something that Congress seems to value, or or maybe something it doesn't. And, you know, to what extent can you tell or do we have evidence of what Congress does care about? Right. So, yeah, I have a, I have a chapter on congressional responses to unreasoned judgment. And I wanted to focus in a little bit on, well, what happens when the Supreme Court overturns an act of Congress with one of these unreasoned judgments, right? If you are a member of Congress and you said, well, the Supreme Court tells us that our statute is unconstitutional and they don't even have a good reason why. If ever there's a moment where you'd say, oh, members of Congress might really stand up and take notice of this, you might see it there. And there's a wonderful body of literature by people like Tom Clark at Emory University and others on court curbing, right? How Congress threatens the Supreme Court by introducing and mildly advancing bills that curtail the court's jurisdiction, uh, put a cap on compensation or clerks or other resources, these sort of little punishments, right? That's seen as a congressional reaction to Supreme Court decisions that members of Congress don't like. What I find in the book uh, is, in fact, well, when it comes to exercising judicial review with an unreasoned judgment or the raw rate of unreasoned judgments, members of Congress don't curb or try to punish or signal that they're trying to punish the court any more than they do in any other term. Um, so if members of Congress do take notice of the consistency of the justice's reasoning, they're not caring about it enough to change their behavior in terms of how they try and censure or, you know, point out to the court that they're uh, out of line, right? And to speculate a little bit, I, I think for better or worse, many members of Congress are thinking more about the political fallout and winners and losers of a particular judgment more so than, well, was the reasoning that the court promulgated sufficiently consistent, right? If you were to say have a 5-4 decision overturning Roe v. Wade uh, in the next term, I don't think you're going to see members of Congress talking about, well, that was an awfully well-reasoned opinion and it's consistent and you know, they'll be, you know, predictably, you could say, you know, with 99% certainty, these members of Congress will express outrage. These members of Congress will express uh, satisfaction and they'll be sort of independent of the reasoning. 
<laughs> right, right. So if if Congress doesn't care about reasoning per se and mostly cares about outcomes, what what about the general public? I mean, does the general public care about consistency and reasoned opinions? Does the general public value that? I mean, do, do does that does the consistency or inconsistency, the reasoning or lack thereof of Supreme Court decisions affect the perceived legitimacy of the court for the public? Right. Well, as a political science professor and, you know, educator of civics in the undergraduates of America, I'd like to say the answer is yes, but I uh, also devote a chapter in the book to this. So I conducted a nationally representative survey experiment where I presented a random sample, uh, effectively a random sample of American adults with a hypothetical Supreme Court decision. Uh, it's styled off the McDonald v. Chicago Second Amendment incorporation case, which I use as a framing example earlier in the book. And I say, in this hypothetical decision, we can experimentally manipulate, was this a consistent judgment? Was there a reason given? Um, was it a procurium judgment? All these sorts of things. And are you the sort of person who agrees with expanded gun rights or uh, contracted gun rights? right? Expanded gun control. And looking at all that, and then you can measure, uh, there's some wonderful work by, uh, especially uh, my dissertation advisor with uh, Gregory Caldera, with Jim Gibson, uh, his co-author at Washington University, and uh, later Mike Nelson at Penn State, thinking about how ordinary folks perceive the legitimacy of the Supreme Court, that its decision should be accepted and not challenged. And there's some really wonderfully validated scales for measuring this. And so you present folks randomly with one of these stylized hypotheticals based on a real case. And then you ask them, uh, what do you think should be done? So you get their preferences on the outcome. And then you tell them, okay, yes, you got what you wanted or no, you didn't get what you wanted. And then you say, okay, do you agree with that decision? Do you accept that decision? And then using these scales, how much legitimacy are you willing to extend the Supreme Court? And, you know, maybe depressingly or maybe... Um, you say, well, I guess that's how folks are in the United States in you know, the early 21st century. People liked and accepted decisions that supported what they wanted to be done on gun rights, and they didn't extend any uh, agreement or acceptance uh, based on better reasoning, right? It was the outcome that mattered in the general public, and we saw no impact um, on the quality of consistency and reasoning on the legitimacy folks were willing to extend the court either. So essentially what we see is, yeah, uh, both Congress and the general public are outcome motivated and digging into the quality and the consistency of the court's reasoning is not a concern that seems to motivate any outcomes that I was able to measure. <laughs> right. So, so, I mean, this really seems to suggest that the court, dynamic in decision-making is driven by something other than perceived legitimacy, either with respect to the legislative and executive branches, or even with respect to the general public. What exactly, is there any way to know exactly who the court thinks its audience is? Well, that's a great question, right? Um, I don't know if there's a clear-cut answer to that. I think 
it varies probably a bit by justice, right? We know uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, when she was on the court, paid maybe a little more attention to the general public uh, and the media. Um, other justices might perceive their audience as uh, the other legal elites that they socialize and interact with. Uh, and listen, I've you know come back to that point a few times. I don't want to be too hard on the justices for this, right? All of us desire esteem and respect from the communities of people that we perceive ourselves to be a part of, right? This is a very natural and normal human instinct. Uh, I, when I teach undergraduate judicial politics, one of my, uh, like, a, I'm like a Greek chorus throughout the semester saying, you have to remember judges are people, you know, people who take their job seriously, who have, you know, often very elite legal training, but they're still people. And some of these human motivations also play a, play a role in that. And so, to the extent to which a justice perceives their audience as law professors, uh, elite attorneys, uh, these sorts of folks, then that prioritization of, well, I want to be lauded for my you know, cogent, brilliant, and consistent legal philosophy that I lay down in my opinions. And that has some rewards, both you know, psychically in terms of self-esteem, but also maybe even practically in terms of those wonderful invitations to teach a summer class in you know, the... Pacific Islands or something like that. <laughs> so to the extent that the court seems to have devalued decisiveness in favor of consistency, are there reasons kind of institutionally and politically to be concerned about that? And if we want the court to go back in the other direction, are there things that could be done? Right. So I think that you could construct an argument, and I close the book by talking about this, that what the court is doing today, resolving, relatively speaking, very few cases in sort of this prioritization of consistency, they're abdicating one of their most fundamental responsibilities, which is to resolve legal conflicts as they arise, especially ones that are of sufficient uh, importance. And we're seeing that criticism coming from lots of different corners that the court is not doing enough of this job. So we should be concerned about that, right? As your listeners will know, if the Ninth Circuit uh, makes a judgment in one direction and the Fourth Circuit makes a judgment in another, well, then the outcome for a litigant is different uh, in two different parts of the country, right? And so that means litigants who have a lot of money, who are very savvy, who have a lot of resources might try and at least shop around and bring their suit in a forum where the state of federal law is favorable to them. And this, some argue, leads to disparities and inequalities in the outcomes of the legal process in this country based solely on a pretty arbitrary factor like geography. So if we want to get around that, then it is an obligation of the court to decisively resolve as much of this business as it can. Now, how could the court do that today? Well, there's a couple ways to think about it. So uh, one, the easiest one in some cases, they decide to start hearing more cases, right? Um, that seems unlikely given some of the dynamics we talk about, right? There seems to be this prioritization of consistency. When the justices have had a choice, they've asked for more discretion and heard less cases over their history. Um, so there doesn't seem to be a desire to massively increase their workload, which again, being the judges or people, I can't blame them for. Um, I don't volunteer for massively increased workloads either. Um, but what could be done in addition to that, so there was a proposal going around uh, in the 
1970s to create a new federal court between the circuit courts and the Supreme Court, right, as a United States Court of Appeals. And the purpose of this court would be to resolve circuit conflicts with decisiveness. And their judgments could be reviewed by the Supreme Court uh, under the normal discretionary process. And the notion here is to separate a little bit decisiveness from the creation of important lasting legal doctrine, right? To sort of let the Supreme Court focus on that thing that it seems to like to do, which is take a few cases, consider them very carefully and do their best. Although as we talked about, they, you know, you can't bat a thousand on this, but to do their best to produce reasoned, consistent doctrine in that small subset of cases. Uh, The problem with this approach, right, of creating this new sort of super circuit court that would try and resolve as many of these disputes as possible is we, you know, tied way back uh, to uh, the ratification of the Constitution. We've never altered this. We have politicized the judicial selection process, right? You know, we my favorite bit of Supreme Court trivia is which president appointed the most justices? Well, it was George Washington because it was new and he got to put them all there. Um, and so similarly, if you had a brand new sort of super circuit court of appeals, whoever happened to be president at that moment would have a wonderful opportunity to stack the court. Uh, and given the current state of affairs, the state of play in the judicial nominations and confirmation process in the Senate, uh, it's hard to imagine that that would be accepted willingly or happily. So you'd have to have a world where you have a president and the majority of the Senate are of the same party and there is tremendous amounts of political momentum and capital for an institutional change like this. Uh, so, you know, I'm, I try to remain somewhat optimistic and never say never, but this would be a difficult reform uh, because of those political realities. Yeah, I mean, I, I share your political or political skepticism of the viability of this taking place, and I must say, I found that 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 segment really interesting as well because it struck me that, at least to some extent, the federal circuit kind of resembles that within the narrow scope of of patent law and to a lesser extent trademark law, um, and I must say that you know, as a data point. Um, the it has not been entirely successful in achieving the goals of having a sort of unitary intermediate court of that kind. I mean, not only has there been significant dissatisfaction with the kind of reasoning and decisiveness of the federal circuit, but the Supreme Court has actually gotten pretty fed up with it. Right. 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 Well, and you know, the, uh, the reality is there are probably no silver bullets, no panaceas to any of these complicated, thorny social problems, right? So what the discourse, what the debate maybe could start to reflect is we can't resolve sort of the tension in some ways between inconsistency and indecision, right? In a complicated world where you have uh, you know, a lot of a lot of law, a lot of litigation, a lot of people, a lot of people with passionate and diverse preferences. We're going to disagree about stuff and we're going to disagree in complicated and messy ways. And resolving that messiness is hard, right? And it's you're always going to suffer some kind of trade-off. If you're going to try and resolve all the conflicts we have, there's going to be some incompleteness, 
in the reasoning, there's going to be some inconsistency. Uh, or you say, well, there's some things we just can't decide right now. And we're going to sort of let it sit. And then there'll be a different sort of unsettledness and incompleteness where we don't know what the state of the law is. We don't know what the resolution to an important conflict is. So maybe the best discussion is not where, not how much uh, consistency do we want or how do we get perfect consistency or perfect decisiveness, but where does it make the most sense for different issues, different areas of law, different, uh, et cetera, where does it make the most sense to prioritize consistency and where does it make the most sense to prioritize decisiveness, knowing that we're not going to get all of both all the time. It can't be done. Right. Well, Matt, you know, I found your findings in this book, as well as the book itself, really fascinating and and provocative. And I wonder if in closing, yeah, I wonder if in closing you could talk a little bit about where you expect to take your research next. Right. So um, I think where I would like to go next in this line of this line of work is taking this notion of consistency uh, in debate and discussion even further than I have right now. So one of the things I loved about researching the book was digging into um, these deliberations within the court itself uh, on a sort of a memo to memo basis, right? And one of the things I didn't do that I would love to take a closer look at are accusations of inconsistency, right? If Justice A tells Justice B, well, know that you're actually not uh, consistent, right? That doesn't make sense based on what you decided in previous case, whatever, right? Something like that. And then um, taking that uh, idea and saying, okay, does an accusation of inconsistency on an elite to elite level make the slightest bit of difference? Or are justices capable of doing the quick distinguishing, right? And saying, oh, nope, you see, it's actually fine. And here's why. And I'm going to stick to my guns on this. And then broadening that to uh, when the when elites talk to the public, to their elite audiences, and then taking that notion of consistency and accusations of hypocrisy and inconsistency into the general public. So studying political conversations and deliberations uh, that ordinary folks would be having. So um, this one took me eight years. So I would tell your listeners if that does sound interesting to not hold their breath, but I am interested in tracking that down over the next few years. Awesome. I look forward to it. And uh, I promise not to hold my breath. Uh, so Matt, thank you. <laughs> so Matt, thank you so much for coming on the program. I, I really enjoyed talking with you about this fantastic book. Oh, likewise. Thank you so much for having me on. It was a pleasure chatting about it. 